What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Britain's King Charles is in Kenya this week, his first trip as monarch to a country of the Commonwealth, a grouping that's been under strain for some years. We look into why history casts a particularly long shadow over his visit. And there's been lots of buzz about a bedbug outbreak in Paris. The hysteria prompted memes, TikToks, and even forced government officials to comment. Well, I hope you're not squeamish, because it turns out that the French capital isn't the only city with a problem. First up, though. An Israeli strike on a refugee camp in northern Gaza yesterday reportedly killed dozens of people. Videos showed a scene of devastation as search and rescue teams sifted through flattened buildings. The Israeli Defense Forces said the strike was aimed at a prominent Hamas commander hiding among the camp's residents. We are fighting a, a military organization that has embedded itself within the civilian population, and they're using the civilians as their human shields. They embed themselves under hospitals, schools, UN facilities, mosques, everything. The latest horror in an age-old conflict brings divides that are all too familiar. Israel is perpetrating an unjust war, say some, while others insist its actions are a justifiable, unnecessary response to the attacks of October 7th. But this time, those divides are taking on a new character, on streets and on screens the world over. The war between Israel and Hamas has become entangled with a broader culture war in the West. Andrew Miller is a special correspondent for The Economist. There have been massive, passionate protests and heated rhetoric on both sides. And all this might have a lasting impact, not just in the Middle East, but in the West too. So let's pick that apart a little bit. What do you mean by a culture war breaking out here? Well, Gaza's plight has been inspiring protests in Western cities as never before. Lots of rallies and there have been lots of open letters decrying Israel's bombardment and the West's acquiescence in it. And meanwhile, supporters of Israel have had their say too. These are terrorists who, as I mentioned before, don't just want to eradicate Israel, they want to eradicate all Jews. And I think it would be helpful if news organisations started by recognising that British law calls and recognises them as terrorists and prescribes that organisation. In Britain, the BBC's reluctance to call Hamas terrorists led to an outcry and a bit of a climb down. And some American students have been hounded for their extremist anti-Israel views. Calls for peace have been likened to appeasement 
And keeping stum isn't necessarily a defence. Lots of institutions have been berated either for the wording of their public statements or in some cases for failing to make one. And so what's going on behind all this? Why, why is this a, a, a culture war? I think partly this polarisation is an example of the echo chamber effect of social media. Millions of people have watched footage of Hamas's atrocities in Israel in horror, and many others are instead transfixed by images of agony in Gaza. All this is being compounded by mis- and disinformation, and sometimes the clips and pictures that we're looking at come from the wrong country or the wrong war, sometimes even from video games. And screen habits that we all acquired are encouraging another striking feature of reactions to this conflict, which is the gamification of news, whereby irony and taboo-busting are prized even in really tragic circumstances. So in a sense, this is a, a familiar kind of feeling then, the heightened outrage that the social media platforms essentially incentivize. But we don't see the same divisions that you're talking about at the same scale anyway with, for example, the war in Ukraine, another potentially divisive topic. Why is this particular conflict essentially splitting the West? Well, as well as technology, Jason, I think another important factor is demography. The Muslim populations in lots of Western countries are both growing and changing. In Germany, for example, where the Muslim population used to be predominantly of Turkish extraction, around 2.1 million people now have roots in Syria, Iraq, and other places that are historically hostile to Israel. And some of them have brought those views with them. Meanwhile, in Germany and elsewhere, awareness of Nazism and memory of the Holocaust has been waning. France, for example, is home to both the largest Muslim and the largest Jewish populations in Western Europe. It's got its own traumatic recent history of Islamist terrorism, which leads public opinion in one direction, but it also has contrary strains of anti-Americanism and some guilt over French colonialism in the Arab world. Meanwhile, in America, support for Israel is generally higher than it is in Europe, but there is an important demographic wrinkle. Younger Americans are much less inclined to back Israel than their parents' generation, and they're much more sympathetic to the Palestinians. And this gap in sympathy between generations in America seems to be widening. Well, why that gap at all, actually? Well, part of the answer, Jason, is a kind of binary ideology that's emerged from American university campuses. And this ideology sees really complex issues in simple terms of good and evil. And, of course, if you pick the right side in those debates, it confers a kind of halo of virtue on you, which is appealing to lots of people. And in this way of looking at the world, the powerless can do no wrong, least of all to the powerful, and nobody can be both powerless and powerful. And meanwhile, all liberation movements in the world are linked, as a protester in London told me who was holding a quiz for Palestine sign. This ideology is tailor-made for the posturing of social media posts, but it rules out the kind of nuance that intractable real-world hostilities like those in the Middle East demand, and it leads to some left-leaning Western activists having opinions in which Hamas's crimes are described as a form of resistance or decolonization because, in their view, Israelis cannot be victims. But to a degree, a lot of what we're talking about here is is what activists do, is not to, to demean it, but noise online. How much of that is being reflected kind of further up in terms of governance? Well, you're right, Jason, that in the left-leaning political elite, 
the picture and the opinions are very different. I mean, both President Joe Biden and Sir Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the opposition Labour Party in Britain, have offered Israel staunch support. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. While I understand calls for a ceasefire at this stage, I do not believe that it is the correct position now. But both men have been lambasted by some in their own parties for not calling for a ceasefire. And this disapproval may cost both of them votes in what may be tight elections coming up in the next year or so. And that's not the only form of political blowback which we're likely to see from Gaza to the West. Because there's lots of liberal voters who felt they had a kind of bedrock of common values with people to the left of them and are now realising that that may not be the case after all. And this may prove to be a cause of political realignment within the West as well. So in that sense, it is not just noise online. There is a means by which the, the, the war of ideas playing out across generational divides online, what have you, feeds back into actual war. Yes, I think it could eventually, Jason. Most Americans, including most Democrats, still think that supporting Israel is in America's interests. But it's not clear how far and how long that will remain the case, which for Israel is a worrying trajectory. And meanwhile, in Europe, as the Second World War recedes from living memory, and as the strength and influence of the Muslim vote grows, support for Israel may soften there too, especially on the left. So I think that even as the disaster in Israel and Gaza unfolds, one of its morals is already clear to us, which is that Western public opinion and geopolitical conflicts are entangled in new and explosive ways, and that culture wars in the West and real wars are no longer really separate struggles. Andrew, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Through her seven decades as Britain's monarch, Queen Elizabeth visited 20 African countries. And on the whole, she was welcomed warmly, often to much fanfare, song and dance. But even when enthusiasm was lacking, there was always an air of reverence. There followed the only walkabout of the Kenyan tour. They don't go in for this sort of thing much here. The crowd were very quiet, respectful, overawed. They'd come to stare rather than react, not too sure what the rules were. This week, King Charles is in Kenya on his first official trip to the continent since inheriting the crown from his mother. But the tides have turned a great deal for the British monarchy in Africa. I think it was a mixture of emotions. Perhaps the best word that I would reach for here is ambivalence. 
Adrian Blomfield writes about East Africa for The Economist and is based in Nairobi. On the one hand, you had the pageantry that you often see with these kind of things. The king was welcomed by President William Ruto, the Kenyan leader at State House. There was a 21 gun salute. Throughout the day, various renditions of God Save the King. There's been a lot of excitement on state television, which has been carrying most of the King's visit. That, on the surface, would suggest incredible excitement. On the street, you wouldn't notice that so much. There have been small protests in advance of the trip, about the past primarily, about controversial incidents to do with colonialism, and also in connection with the presence of the British Army in Kenya. There haven't been notable protests while the tour has been taking place. So it's a very mixed picture, but on the face of it, a very warm welcome that King Charles and Queen Camilla received. So what exactly does the king have planned for his four-day trip? So he has visited and he will be visiting things like organic farms. He's going to be meeting young entrepreneurs. There's going to be a focus on tech and that sort of thing. And what Britain is very much hoping for is to keep this as forward-focused as possible. Yesterday, he went to visit a new museum which is dedicated to Kenya's colonial struggle. So he laid a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior. That's something that's officially going to be unveiled next year. That's quite a good fudge in a way for him because the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior doesn't just commemorate those Kenyans who were killed in the colonial period, particularly what's known as the Mau Mau Rebellion of the 1950s, but also in the First and Second World War and people who have died in ethnic violence after independence. So it was a catch-all, nothing too embarrassing. But the king has laid a wreath that does touch on the past. You mentioned specifically the Mau Mau uprising or rebellion. Tell me more about that, why it's so important to, to Kenyans today. The Mau Mau were a militant African nationalist movement drawn from the Kikuyu people, the largest ethnic group in the country. They advocated violent resistance to British domination, and that resulted in the British banning the Mau Mau movement in 1950 before a state of emergency was declared in 1953. British forces were deployed. There are arguments that rage about the death toll, but the official death toll is about 11,000 Mau Mau who were killed. More than 90,000 prisoners of war passed through British internment camps. It was a very brutal end-of-empire saga that still is remembered today. It left deep wounds, and it's those wounds that King Charles is trying to address. So it seems to a degree that King Charles is, is kind of navigating a minefield here. Why go and potentially sort of excite all of these ghosts of Kenya's history? Well, I think there are a lot of people who, when they saw King Charles was coming here, there was a bit of an intake of breath. But in 2013, then Foreign Secretary William Haig did make a statement of profound regret, which was again echoed by the king in his state banquet last night. There were abhorrent and unjustifiable acts of violence committed against Kenyans as they waged a painful struggle for independence and sovereignty. And for that, there can be no excuse. That went some way to addressing this. There was also a relatively small payment of about $30 million, £20 million in costs and compensation 
to about 4,000 Mau Mau fighters who were mistreated in detention. So that's helped to solve some of the pain. And if you look at how Kenyans themselves are addressing it, there does seem to be a split. So there'll be lots of Kenyan officials and ordinary Kenyans who say, you know, we need to move on from this. We can't forever be begging for apologies. And there are other Kenyans who are saying, no, far more needs to be done. So that's one aspect of it. But secondly, the royal family, if handled deftly enough, they can still bring some of the razzmatazz or the glamour. People still love the pageantry of the royal family. So you can still use that diplomacy to project a little bit of British heft. And in a country like Kenya, that does matter because Britain is facing a growing struggle to maintain its relevance on the continent. Of course, Chinese trade, Chinese infrastructure is growing, has done for the last 20 years. The United States is a very big presence. There are other former colonial powers. And then there are countries like Turkey and the United Arab Emirates and, of course, Russia that are increasingly showing their might on the continent. So Britain is struggling to maintain its relevance. And then in addition to that, Kenya is an important strategic partner. So the king, the royal family might be able to show a little bit of British muscle. He's going to be testing the waters for potentially more challenging Commonwealth visits in the future. At the mention of the Commonwealth, though, this is a much broader problem that the British monarchy has with the modern world, isn't it? So there are going to be various iterations of this across the Commonwealth. And we saw that when Prince William, the king's son and heir, visited the Caribbean last year along with his wife. Things didn't go entirely to plan. They were met with protests in a number of locations. There were demands to make amends for some of the crimes of the past, particularly slavery And there were also things that went wrong in that trip in terms of the visuals. They were shaking hands after a football match with crowds of children through a chain link fence. And so King Charles and Queen Camilla are going to have to tread very carefully and the planners are going to have to show a lot of deft diplomacy if this trip is going to be a success. Adrian, thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much, Jason. It's a pleasure. So, how have you been enjoying Economist Podcast Plus? Did our weeks of daily reminders work? Have you joined the club? If for some reason you still haven't, allow me to entice you further. It's the home for some of our best audio journalism and our brand new show, The Weekend Intelligence, which launched this past Saturday. And it's also home for our weekly feature shows. Take Drum Tower, for example, our weekly deep dive into China. It's been running a fascinating series on Taiwan, And the latest episode on how semiconductors might protect them from Chinese invasion is out now. But you have to be a subscriber to listen. So come on, join the party, follow the link in the show notes or search Economist Podcast Plus online to find out more. In recent weeks, you might have seen these news stories about insects crawling across the globe. Gilad Amit is a science correspondent for The Economist. Fears about bedbugs started in France, and within days, a rise in cases became a national hysteria. 
France is sounding the alarm as a widespread bed bug outbreak sweeps through Paris. The pests have been spotted at places like movie theaters. Social media was full of these videos of tiny insects, not much bigger than an apple pip, crawling across train seats in the Paris metro. Now the hysteria seems to have made its way to the UK. I think I'm actually living my worst nightmare. I attended Paris Fashion Week. I left early. I left maybe 48 hours before the bedbug news. I've awoken this morning to potentially the worst sight I've ever seen. Bedbugs have been spotted on the Eurostar, on the London Underground, and even on their way to America. These have been accompanied by lots of instructional videos, some sensible, some not, on how to avoid infestations. Here's what you want to do. Don't sit down on public transit. If you get them in your home, there are two options. Chemical treatment, pesticides, or a heat treatment. And back in France, the government has held special meetings to discuss the crisis. Gilad, I'm not going to lie. I was a little worried when all this hysteria first broke out. Was I right to be so worried? Well, the good news is that they're not dangerous. They can't spread diseases, and the worst they can really do is leave you with itchy bites. The bigger concern really is that they tend to be very psychologically unpleasant to think about or to see. But numbers are on the rise. Bedbug numbers were very low from the 50s through to the 90s. And then from about 2000, numbers have been going up. They went down a little during the pandemic, but we are seeing a sort of post-COVID bounce back. It's probable that the specific blow up in France has more to do with that country's fear of reputational damage, hosting the Rugby World Cup this year, the Olympics next year. And so it's very concerning to them that Paris might be seen as off limits. Okay, but are we safe in London? To be honest, I'd also like to know if they're safe in Paris because I'm supposed to be going on holiday. The sad news is there probably isn't a city where you're free of bedbugs. They're highly mobile. They can travel around on clothing and luggage. So if there's an infestation in one place, they're likely to travel elsewhere. And they thrive in warm urban environments where they're close to lots of people. And as I was saying, their numbers have been going up. Cities have been reporting more and more cases since around the year 2000. There are good numbers out of Zurich for some reason. And they showed that up till about 2005, there were about 20 complaints a year. And then within a decade, that had increased to over 100. And what's behind this increase? So we don't know for certain. We can't pinpoint it any one date or any one cause. But there are a couple of possible explanations. One is people are just traveling more and bedbugs are coming along for the ride. And unfortunately, climate change is also not our friend here because bedbugs breed in warm temperatures and temperatures around 25 degrees allow them to breed faster than they would if the temperatures were lower. And you said earlier that they're difficult to eradicate. Gilad, you're really not giving me much confidence here. How difficult are we talking? Well, this difficulty is another reason that they're on the rise, because most of the tools that we've used historically against them can't be used anymore, either because they're dangerous to humans like DDT or sulfur dioxide, which were once sprayed in homes, or because the bedbugs themselves are just developing resistance to the insecticides that we use. The ones that are susceptible die off, the ones that are resistant survive, and they have more and more children. So then is there anything that we can actually do? The most effective solution these days is heating. You get an exterminator and they bring a heater and it roasts your room, essentially. It turns the temperature to about 45, 50 degrees and that kills the bugs, that kills the eggs. 
and that makes your home bed bug free. There are other less intensive solutions. There are sprays that can, in theory, trap the bed bugs, sort of prevent them from moving or block up their respiratory pores. New insecticides are also being developed, but it's not really a priority because these insects don't spread disease, don't cost a lot of money, and so the market drive isn't there. But if the hysteria continues and people scream loudly enough and are willing to part with their money, then the incentives might shift. Crikey. Well, Gilad, thank you. I am now officially scared to go to bed tonight. (laughs) I'm sorry about that, Dorit. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Before you go, did I mention that you can get a one-month free trial for Economist Podcast Plus if you follow the link in our show notes? Yep, I know. Super exciting. Lucky, lucky you. That's what you get for sticking around until the end. So if you don't already have an Economist subscription, give it a go. And if you enjoy it, I really hope you stick around. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.